This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Senior JU Israel Educator Michael Unterberg, and today joined as always by co-host and Director of JU Israel, Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Doing well, Mike. How are you? good. I'm a little under the weather. Yeah, I know. You were out twice this week. Yeah, in four years. That was my first sick day. pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, It was a good run. Uh, And today we're also joined by Israel educator Matt Lippman. How are you, Matt? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Wow, that was a very British response. And today- There was was no tea. No tea at four (laughs) o'clock. I could use a tea to clear up my- (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, today, we are joined by a special guest, uh, Dr. Kara Glatt. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We were uh, very interested in the uh, article that you wrote in Haaretz. So Matt is going to just quickly give our listeners a sense of your accomplishments. Okay. So Dr. Kara Glatt, she made Aliyah from Boston in August of 2017. She holds a PhD in English literature from Harvard and now is a lecturer in the English department at Barilan University. And Kara came to our attention in an article that Michael uh, mentioned in her Haaretz. She wrote an op-ed uh, that talked about the narrative involved in a birthright trip and the narrative that, if not now, uh, are presenting in, in the way that they um, uh, oppose or protest against uh, birthright. And that was something that we read and we all found it very interesting. So we invited Dr. Glatt to join us. Yeah, could we? Could you start by sort of giving us? The, I mean, we can summarize it for you, but could you sort of give us the gist of what you were talking about in that piece? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it was prompted most immediately by this incident where three activists from the group, if not now, uh, who says that they're essentially uh, there to give an alternative opinion about birthright trips, but really discourages Jewish students from taking birthright trips and presents it as as a form of propaganda. So these three students went on the trip and they were kicked off the trip. They say for just asking questions about the occupation, birthright says for essentially trying to derail uh, the trip. I, As I, I noted in the article, I kind of suspect it's closer to the latter, given that they all have a history of, of anti-Israel mm-hmm. activism and you kind of you kind of get the sense they were looking for something like they this came to happen. agenda ready. Yeah, clearly. Um, so that was the initial impetus, but more than that, I I'm disturbed in general by a tendency I think of some on the some Jews on the left in particular to in their desire to be open minded and to say, and I think it comes initially from a good place, um, where it comes from a desire to say, I want to question maybe narratives that I've heard. I you know, I came from a Jewish background and I want to hear the other side. And that's, of course, a ad, an admirable uh, attack to take. But I mm-hmm. think people sometimes go s- so far with it that it becomes actually a rejection of Jewish narrative. And it becomes a rejection of really what would ostensibly be your own narrative. Um, and so that in an attempt to present it as, no, I'm just being even-handed, you're really not being even-handed. You're picking the other side, essentially. And especially it it disturbs me when it comes to a group like Birthright, because I think the idea that, look, there clearly is a, we're dealing with a complicated political situation in Israel, but the idea that a Birthright trip, which is intended, most people who go on Birthright trips do not have a deep connection to Judaism or to Israel. This is the first time they're coming. In the same way that if you were going to take people on a 10-day trip to the United States, you're probably not going to go into 
areas of urban crime and, and mm-hmm. decay. You're not going to focus necessarily. You're going to focus on the tourist sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to give them a good impression. And with birthright, the added idea of saying, I want to give people a strong sense of Jewish identity, the idea that this tour should have to give some sort of what they would consider an even-handed approach, I don't think the tour should lie. And I think there should be room for asking questions, clearly. Um, but this idea that you can't, in a sense, celebrate Judaism or celebrate Israel or Jewish identity without also getting into these complex questions in any context uh, is really troubling to me. Or give them even equal time. That it's sort of – I think that the sort of uh, – if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that what if not now once is that the story of Israel that should be imparted to these young Jews is the story of the conflict. <laughs> and what you're arguing is, well, that's not – the, the the central story of Jewish identity that Israel is telling, although it is a, an important part of the story. Or how the narrative should work. Precisely. Right? And I mean, also the idea that to the extent that birthright trips are dealing with the with the conflict or are, and, and I don't think, I mean, just based on my own experiences, I, on both trips that I was a part of, I didn't get the impression, certainly it was spoken of, it was mentioned. But the idea that if you have a perspective, you're inherently being... Uh, there's something sinister about having a perspective. Every All of us have a perspective. And I mean, bias is kind of a dirty word, but in its strictest and simplest meaning, it just means I have a point of view. We all have points of view. And the idea that if you're reflecting that, it becomes automatically propagandistic just seems inaccurate to me. People, I think people who are speaking, the people who will tend to speak to students on a birthday trip, they believe in what they're saying. They're mm-hmm. not speaking for everyone. They may be speaking for yourselves, but... There's certainly a case to be made for Israel. And the fact that you may be conveying that, even if someone else might say, well, what about this? And might have a more complicated response, that that's not the kind of sinister propagandistic enterprise that I think some of Birthright's critics, or more broadly, some of Israel's critics, like to portray it as. Well, you, you said certainly that Israel has a story to tell. I don't know that that's the assumption of If Not Now or other... Similar, whether it's you're saying in liberal Jewish circles mm-hmm. or, or not Jewish circles, I think there is an assumption that there really isn't a legitimate story to tell. And I think that's one of the things that's so troubling to me, where, you know, because I, I am someone who tries to be a, a nuanced thinker, one problem I have, even beyond the issue of Israel, when there are discussions about, for instance, free speech on college campuses, especially in the U.S., I do acknowledge that there's a certain extreme level. There are certain views that I wouldn't necessarily think a college would have to entertain at a very extreme end. So, yeah, if you had a speaker who said, you know, I'm going to argue that we should reinstitute slavery, I think this would be a really good idea. Or you have somebody who is, you know, I'm a Holocaust denier. There are voices that I think it's legitimate for school to say, no, we're not going to invite a Holocaust denier to this campus. This is an opinion that is so far beyond the pale and is really outside of discourse to such an extent that we're not going to give time to that. I think what disturbs me is that the level of what is beyond the pale, the the line has been narrowed considerably to the point where opinions, some opinions even that I disagree with, but think are certainly part of discourse and should be a part of discourse are being cast out as, as offensive or inappropriate. But yeah, I mean, I think seeing the fact that for a lot of people, Zionism is now one of those opinions. Um, and even if you're nuanced about it, and even if you say, no, of course, I'm not this caricature of of this this right-wing Zionist who has no understanding of, of other people's voices and, and has no ability to see the situation with any kind of, kind of nuance. 
even if you are a nuanced person, you're suddenly by virtue of being a Zionist. That's one of those opinions that people are now saying, oh, no, that's beyond the pale. Right. I, I think there is a growing, I don't know, I, I wouldn't call it a consensus, but there is a, mm-hmm. at least a growing minority of people who say Zionism is beyond the pale. In other words, mm-hmm. what they're claiming is that with millions of Palestinians living without civil rights or, or freedoms, the and, and what they will do is they will define the Zionist story as because you religiously believe God gave the land to your people and you needed a place to go after the Holocaust, that is no longer a valid narrative when compared mm-hmm. to the suffering of, I don't know, 4 million Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank and and refugee camps. And so that is now a narrative which is beyond the pale. Yeah. And and I, I think you're right to point that out, that it's not just a matter of saying I'm choosing one over the other. There are circles, I think, in which, I mean, people who compare um, compare Israelis to Nazis. I mm-hmm. mean, this is something that some people think is a legitimate comparison. Uh, and again, ideologically, yeah, I accept the idea that there are certain opinions that are beyond the pale, but we need to be very careful about where we draw the lines. And I think the way I've seen Zionism being recategorized as something that's on the wrong side of that line has made me maybe warier in certain other cases mm-hmm. of where I draw the lines in terms of speech or appropriate discourse. So can, can I ask you a question? I, I, it's kind of almost like the flip of what we've been talking about now, uh, or we've been talking about up to now, is this idea of um, of intersectionality, mm. right? Because you were talking about what's beyond the pale, right? So what's the opposite? Like, where do you draw the line of what you include together? The example I'm thinking of that we... Uh, had discussed uh, earlier, myself and Michael and Alan, is like the Women's March. Right. Right. So there's clearly intersectionality happening there. How does that fit into the Oh, they're waving the flag of intersectionality, in fact. Mm-hmm. The I mean, the Women's is... March is an intersectionality march. It's yeah. not... It's, what the, it's not like... It's not like a civil rights march. It's a we have a bunch of causes that we are marching for march. And we're women, so... Well, men go also, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah, no, I yeah. know, but there, there's a reason it's called the Women's March, but... I guess, <laughs> Right. Um, I mean, intersectionality is a concept that I would put, and I would put the concept of privilege or especially white privilege in the same category, where I think if you're talking about it in an academic classroom, it's a perfectly useful and valid concept. I mean, to say, as the concept of intersectionality does, that someone's experiences are going to be different based on, so if you're a black woman, your experiences are going to be different from that of a white woman. So that maybe on one axis you're sharing certain experiences, but on another you don't. That seems to me fairly uncontroversial and self-evident and a useful thing to keep in mind, mm-hmm. uh, especially because there are times historically where maybe that wasn't kept in mind enough. I think what's happened with both that and the concept of privilege is that it sometimes when it moves out of the classroom, it becomes just sort of a cudgel to beat people over the head with um, in a way of telling people you're you're doing this wrong and suggesting that you need for intersectionality. There's a kind of ideological litmus test where if you don't, first of all, if you don't yourself belong to the right combination of groups, uh, there's something suspect. But also that, in order to be a supporter in this one area, you have to sign on to all of these other lists of causes, which is something I'd noticed really in in my last year in the U.S. I, I mean, I I came here like I guess it was about six months into the Trump presidency. So it was clearly a time where politically things were getting fairly contentious in the U.S. Really? I hadn't, <laughs> you hadn't noticed. No, it didn't come up in my... Things are crazy in America? Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. There's um, a crazy man in charge. Well, what? Matt, don't worry. I'm sure England is doing fine. So. Yeah. Oh, right. England. Soon, soon. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you Brexit, everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> I'm sure that's going smoothly. Yeah. But there there were times in, in the last year I was in the U.S. where 
there were times that I would go to a, a rally or I'd go to a march for what was considered a liberal cause. And there was that uncomfortable moment where suddenly someone, I remember being at a, an early Black, Black Lives Matter uh, protest after a, a particular police killing. This was sometime before Trump, I think. But this was in in Boston. This was in Boston. Um, and I remember, you know, I and it was something that I felt, you know, I, I I was supportive of the march's aims in terms of the immediate, very immediate goal. Uh, but and this was before Black Lives Matter had come out with a platform that mm-hmm. talked about Zionism or anti-Zionism. But then, you know, you'd have somebody who would uh, suddenly you see a sign. It was, you know, from Ferguson to Palestine, apartheid is still a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say, well, now I feel a little uncomfortable here. Uh, or you'd have somebody who would be at a march or in, in the last few months it was marches um, you know, in favor of, of immigrant rights. We'd say, I, I, I feel like there are times that in order to in order to participate in anything, there's this whole list of causes I have to, to sign on to. And this particular one clearly is what they're in their views towards Israel. That's something I very passionately do not subscribe to. And now if I'm at a, if I'm at a fairly, I mean, this is one of the reasons I, I tended even in the U.S., you know, not to go to sign on to really broad political movements that said you know, something like the Women's March, which says, well, we're, we don't have any spe- specific goal in mind. Right. It's just a kind of laundry list of of potential well, issues. we are the tribe that cares about being woke right it's not a clear <laughs> right. political agenda yeah um so yeah i mean i think and up until the point before you thought you were getting old uh, you're using the right, right. Using yeah. the word woke, I, yes. I, I was I, I was just gonna say wow that medicine is really helping <laughs> <laughs> no nothing's gonna help yeah but I, I do think and look i i was comfortable with the idea of yeah I don't think the fact that someone might be carrying a sign you don't like at a march that's about this other thing that you both agree on is a reason not to go. When you have something like the Women's March, though, where you start saying there are several key organizers who are now really saying and supporting some very troubling things. And once, for instance, you make it a part of your platform, suddenly... I'm not going to be comfortable in appearing with with your organization anymore. And I think, I mean, it, it... what bothers me is the assumption sometimes or the the opinion people say, well, if you really cared about cause X, you'd be willing to put that aside. Well, no, why should I be willing to put that aside? Um, is that what you get or do you get more, well, if you don't care about this cause, then you don't really understand the other cause either. And so we don't want you at our march. I think it's a combination of the two um, where, yeah, I think the people who are, the people who are part of the Women's March who are strongly anti-Israel. Yes, they basically believe if you support this, we don't want you anyway. Right. On the other hand- You can't I think, be a feminist if you're a Zionist. Right. You'll see people within- right? Yeah. That's and a I search think, or a quote. And I mean, and even looking at you know my Facebook feed and seeing, I mean, I, I know people who went to women's marches or who sure. went to women's march. And if it comes up, you know, people will, you'll suddenly see someone saying, well, I felt that I can't put sort of, Yes, I may care about Israel and I disagree with them in this aspect, but we shouldn't be so uh, parochial that we're putting our concerns above this larger cause and I support most of what they're doing. But I look at it and say, no, there's this, I don't feel obliged to, in the same way, I don't think, and I, I think frequently with another group, um, I think for other, for certain other groups, 
there wouldn't be an expectation if someone said something offensive to you on the basis of race or religion that you would say, oh, well, I just need to sort of suck that up for mm-hmm. the good of the the larger movement. There would be an understanding, no, I, I'm not willing to betray this part of myself even for for this, this other cause. But for when it comes to Jews who have this very kind of fraught position in the intersectionality game where there's a recognition that anti-Semitism exists, of course, but Jews are white and Jews are fairly privileged. And also you have the issue of Zionism versus Judaism. Uh, some of that's an identity that doesn't really have to be given the same level of respect. Uh, and and this is where Jews kind of lose out in, in discussions with intersectionality. Um, I have a, a follow-up question to this. So you're talking about the different kinds of circles that you were part of. And when, when you're in academic circles, did you mm. find, especially when you were like at Harvard, did you find um, interactions with other academics that they'd be like, um, that you found troubling as a Zionist or as a Jew? Did you find any of that on campus or not so much? I will say I haven't, fortunately, to any kind of substantial degree within English departments. Um, I even was concerned when I, knowing or suspecting that many of my professors were were fairly left-wing, I was even a little hesitant when I, was applying for the job at Bar-Ilan. I was like, am I going to get pushed back from Harvard mm. faculty? And I really didn't at all. Mm, good. Um, I mean, I do think certainly when, if you go to the Modern Language Association, the MLA, which is our main uh, governing, the main governing body for for uh, a number of humanities departments, you go to the conference at least a couple years ago when I was there and you will have several sessions on, um, so, you know, I, I don't know why we have to have several several sessions on Israel's oppression of the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. This this seems like it's a little bit of overemphasis on a on this conflict for given the parameters of MLA. And there, you know, there have been organizations have been part of the MLA voted they voted against boycotting Israel, but it's certainly something that comes up all the time mm-hmm. in the broader academic world. Uh, but I haven't fortunately I haven't really felt it to any any intolerable degree. That's good to hear. Yeah. What about the flip side of Bar-Ilan? Do you feel that politics infuses Bar-Ilan? Because it has a certain reputation. I mean, I don't think that my department is necessarily representative of Bar-Ilan. Um, first of all, we are uh, in the humanities, which itself puts us uh, in the minority. But also, I mean, at least on the literature side, we're joined with linguistics. Uh, but on the literature side of the department, almost all of us are Olim. Uh, so we're coming from a different place. Mm-hmm. I do think there's more... There's probably more diversity of opinion, I think, on that college campus than there would be in most campuses in the U.S. where you can have people because and I guess partially because Bar-Ilan has a religious component as well. You know, you you can actually have people who are right wing on campus um, and certainly my students, even scattered comments that my students will make in class, I'll be like, Wow, if you were in the US, you would yeah. probably not be saying that, or you might not want to say that. You may be thrown um, out of class. You wouldn't be thrown out, but I mean, statements that people will make where it just an offhand comment that's revealing this is probably a right wing person. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're clearly comfortable saying that. I mean, what's also interesting in our department uh, in terms of student body, as I, I mentioned in the article, and this is something that's been going on for. A number of reasons. We don't know exactly why. Over, I think, the last five years, there's been a huge influx throughout Israel of uh, Arab students into English departments. Uh, so our department now is probably close to half Arab, hmm. which is not reflective of the demographics of the university as a whole. Uh, and I'd say 
you know, there are times it doesn't, we don't talk politics in class, which mm-hmm. is a good thing. Um, there are times, especially as I was teaching African-American literature this semester, where there were times where I, I thought there was an obvious subtext that I was wondering, are students not going there? Mm-hmm. Uh, where there are times you say, maybe I, maybe I wish students would go there a little bit more right. and discuss this. Um, but Would I, you think in the future, as you get your sea legs more, you might bring that into class as you sort of... What appropriate, possibly. I mm-hmm. mean, and I think I think it's also a question of just how comfortable are students. I mean, one thing that does mm-hmm. surprise me, I sometimes have to remind myself, which is so far in from a U.S. context, especially as someone who did not go to Jewish day schools growing up, the idea that for these students, like for our Arab students, this is the first time they've gone to a school with Jews. For our mm-hmm. Jewish students, this is the first time they've gone to a school with Arabs. Mm-hmm. Um, Many, if not most. Yeah, for, for almost all of them. And so mm-hmm. it's... It's a very peculiar dynamic, and I don't want to make my students um, a laboratory for experimentation Mm -hmm. here. I think there's something healthy about the fact that they have to interact in the classroom and that there, I mean, there are challenges, I think, of the new demographic balance in terms of, I mean, even I I know speaking to people who taught taught years ago and and whose memories go back, uh, you know, years, years back, English departments in, in Israel used to, I think, be much more dominated by native English speakers. Mm. But that's not true to the same extent anymore. And especially most of the Arab students are not native speakers. Uh, So it creates, even on that level of saying, literally your capacity to express Mm -hmm. yourself is going to be very different if you're an Ola who grew up going to American schools versus somebody who this may be your third language. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think the politics, there's, there's certainly a subtext, but for me, it hasn't yet come frequently to the forefront and maybe that's a good thing and maybe it's not i mean that's what i do in my friendships did you have a, you had a question now uh well i haven't formulated it yet so if you're okay um then I, that was gonna throw to you so, oh, okay. uh, so so i have another question then um we referenced at the beginning this article that you wrote in haaretz mm-hmm. um was there a particular reason why you chose to publish it there rather than mm. times of israel or the forward or you know, well, you've written in the Jerusalem Post, right? I did. I did have an article in op-ed in the Jerusalem Post last year. Um, I actually, so initially I was thinking of Forward or Tablet. I was not thinking of Haaretz. I ran it by a colleague and asked him for advice. Mm-hmm. And he actually said, and I was surprised, he said, oh, send it to Haaretz. And I said, why? And he had some relationship with the editor, a woman named Esther Solomon, where he said, you know, she's she's really committed to trying to diversify their opinion page. And I found that she's really... Uh, easy to work with and and very uh, has a lot of integrity. And he said, I think she might be interested in it precisely mm. because it's not their normal position. Mm-hmm. And once I heard that, I said, well, you know, you don't always want to speak just to people who agree with you. Right. Right. So, I mean, even more, I'd want to publish it right. in Haaretz. And she got back to me like right away. It was the fastest response to anything I've written I ever got. <laughs> Where in the academic world, you're used to not hearing anything for six months. I don't know that I waited six minutes. Um, and and she was great. And, you know, I, I'm really glad that it went into an outlet where people probably would be less receptive of my ideas than maybe some other places. Yeah. Moshe Ahrens published as we mentioned yeah, before for sure in the, in the i think that's my only issue is it's just difficult to access sometimes behind the paywall mm, yeah. that's, that's true. my only haaretz concern like i definitely think yeah. you should we should all be trying to have conversations with people who you know we should be expanding well that's sort of the point of your piece right yeah is we should be hearing and talking uh you know to people whose narratives aren't the same so that we can have broaden our when i talk about haaretz to my students 
I say to them, I don't agree with everything that's in there. Most of what's in there I don't agree with. But I feel like it's important to read other opinions that I don't agree with for precisely that. that well, reason. to me, the, what I tell my students is, if it's an extremist position, then I'm bored. Mm. Because I basically know what they're going to say. I'm interested in the people who aren't at the extremes having conversations with each other. If they're just yelling at me, then I'm bored. So, so yeah. I've got my question. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So what it, what interested me most about your piece was the discussion on narrative. Okay. Um, and in fact, that's what you do. You teach narrative. <laughs> and how narrative um, is, is not history, it's not facts. Mm-hmm. But it does relay truth and it does relay experience. Um, and so just this whole conversation, the fact of sort of teaching that in a, even though if you're not teaching that specific narrative, but narratives in a class of Israelis and um, who are both Arab and Jewish or, uh, you know, or e- even in this discussion of, of birth, you tied it in nicely of all of these different facets of narrative. So maybe just some thoughts, like, Talk that out a little bit about what what is the role of narrative? What is the role of narrative in, in the individual life, in in a nation's life? In uh... yeah, and I think I mean what's important for me is to clarify that I'm not saying well if it's true to you it's true. I'm clearly mm-hmm. not. I'm not right. saying that there is a realm where you say no this is this is factually incorrect. Right. But within the realm of agreed upon facts or or. Um, there's going to be different interpretations of those facts, and there's also going to be different ways that we approach something and different relationships we we have to it. And I think, I mean, one thing that's sometimes troubling to me is that I think we've become, as a society in general, when it comes to fictional narratives, we've become somewhat better and more sophisticated about saying, oh, no, we, we, want, we want these complicated narratives. And mm-hmm. even if you look at a TV show, you know, the, the great golden age of TV drama where people want these sort of anti-hero characters who are complex and there's this recognition, you can be flawed and I can still be interested in you. And mm-hmm. I want to hear from the person whose story isn't usually told in the minority opinion. Whereas when it comes to, to the actual world, I'm not seeing that kind of crossover. So yeah, ideally, I mean, I'd love it. If you said this, this kind of nuance translates then to people's non-academic lives or their non non entertainment and literary lives, um, because I think being forced to to look at these other perspectives as as great novels tend to do for you is really useful. But you have to then make the extrapolation of saying, okay, it's maybe kind of easier to do that if you're reading if you're reading a Victorian novel, especially something that's historically distant, and you can then say, okay, well. Now the, these are no longer politically controversial issues to me, so now I can be on board with it, right? Now I can mm-hmm. I can sort of feel that I'm I'm receiving all of these. When it comes to something that reflects on your own identity, it suddenly becomes harder, and it suddenly becomes becomes more difficult to to start drawing that line and saying, can I really appreciate these perspectives? And I think the value. I mean, the reason I so resist the idea of the tendency to call certain perspectives propaganda is. I don't think there's necessarily I mean you can be a you can be a monster of objectivity as well. There's inevitably we're all gonna have our own perspectives, as long as there's not a falsehood involved in there to say, yes, the fact that I take, you know, the fact that I take pride in this experience or I, I take pride in the existence of a Jewish state or that I regard this as something that was really crucial to the history of my people, that's not a matter of fact. That's a matter of experience and a matter of Yes, from my perspective as somebody who has a kind of, we have a religious or a cultural narrative, 
yes, we experience this in a certain way. And it's not a matter of someone saying, well, that's not true. We're not talking about truth or falsehood. We're talking about experience. Well, I think it's even more, I mean, I think what complicates that is that I, I, I and, and I, I don't want to unfairly caricature rise, you know, if not now mm-hmm. types of, but there's a sense of, I get the Zionist narrative. It's God and the Holocaust. And the right. Zionist narrative is not God and the Holocaust. It's that the Jewish nation has spent 2,000 years in exile and wants to repair that damage and return home. And they're not accepting that narrative. So they're saying, we're criticizing a narrative that isn't designed. That, that's not what D- David Ben-Gurion didn't make Aliyah in 1904 for God. He was an atheist. Or to react to the Holocaust, it hadn't happened. Like, they're, they're, they're minimum. They're not only not listening, they're saying we don't have to listen because we get it and they're being disingenuous or right. ignorant. I mean, and that's I mean that's a that's a problem I've certainly seen in any number of student papers as well. Yeah. Um I mean one thing that's very funny is or it's very interesting is you'll sometimes see you can have a class discussion and certain students within the discussion you're talking about a novel and people will get the complexity and they'll you'll be having this conversation that acknowledges nuances. But then it comes time to write an essay. And suddenly, because it's easier to write or it's easier to deal with, suddenly they set up a straw man version of the opposition mm-hmm. and you're arguing against someone who doesn't exist. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, and I do see, look, obviously I can't speak to precisely what happened on the tours that If Not Now members are talking about. But what I felt is looking at their website and they have certain views of, well, here's what your birth gu- birthright guide will say. And maybe some of these were true. I mean, there are a lot of birthright guides and there are a lot of trip organizers and probably mm-hmm. some of them have said ridiculous things. But the idea that, well, the Israeli position is, well, of course the Palestinians have no claim to this land. They are fake people anyway. And, you know, the conflict is just because Arabs are all violent murderers. That's a straw man position. Right? I, I, I'd There's... be shocked. Look, I, again, I also can't speak for right. birthright. But I've spoken to birthright. I've been brought in as an expert to mm-hmm. speak about the conflict on birthright mm-hmm. trips. That is not what I say. You know what I mean? Right. Like that. And it's certainly not. And, yeah. and I don't think it's even what most people believe. I, I mean, I don't you can think meet so. someone. And look, believe me, it's not that I've never spoken to people where I say, yeah, I, I think you are that sort of straw man come to life. Yeah. It's not it centrist exists, Israelis. No, that's not mainstream. And that's not mainstream. That's certainly not mainstream or even fringe birthright, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I do think the most telling part when I was looking at If Not Now's website, and I, I talk about this in the article, is one of the sort of. One of the things they say, things your birthright guide will say, Mm -hmm. is the situation is complicated. And their response, which they call the truth, is the situation is not complicated. And I said, well, you've just told me everything. You've just exposed yourself here. Because that's a case where you're saying birthright is apparently trying to give you at least some sense. It's an acknowledgement that there's some nuance here, even if we're not going to go into it. And again, I I also come back to the idea that there's an appropriate and an inappropriate context just a few days before the article came out, I'd already written it, but it hadn't it hadn't uh, been published yet. I happened to run into a friend of mine uh, who I'd known in Cambridge who had just been here on a rabbinical students tour of Israel. She's in her last year at JTS, and it was an APAC run tour. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, as someone who's somewhat on the left of the political spectrum, that she was really impressed by how nuanced a tour it had been, especially given maybe impressions of APAC she had mm-hmm. had coming in. Uh, where that was a tour, they were speaking to rabbinical students mm-hmm. who clearly were coming in with some basis of knowledge, one would hope, and had all of them had presumably spent at least a year in Israel as part of rabbinical school, which which 
I think almost all of the schools still. I think is that true? The, yeah, most of them still require that. I think they all do. They're, I mean, I again, they're, they're exceptions. They're exceptions, but I, I think they all do. Yeah. Um, and that's a case where I think it's appropriate to say mm-hmm. you were talking to people who are steeped in the conflict and already love Judaism and maybe love Israel, but at least are familiar with Israel and have an ongoing relationship with Israel. And then to say, yeah, we're going to take you to talk to African asylum speakers and we're going mm-hmm. to take you to the separation wall and we're going to have discussions about these things. And some of this might be painful and it might be complicated and messy. That's a place where I think that discussion needs to happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily need to happen. And I don't think it should have to happen when you're saying I'm on a cultural, religious heritage trip. Trying to show you something about your roots. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for a lot of diaspora Jews, Israel is the conflict. Right. And we're on the wrong side of that conflict. Yes. That's the if not now philosophy. And that's what we need to get across. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for the future of the Jewish people? It doesn't matter. I think also there's a tendency to feel, I mean, I think one thing that's going on, I sometimes think wistfully of a time before my generation where Jews pretty much had consensus on Israel, where there was, maybe that's that's a slight simplification. Uh, uh, To a larger extent. Yeah. Israel was awesome. That was a simplification, I think, for most people. It was awesome. Go on vacation. It's a good place. No, 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 no. No. It depends how old you're talking about. Like I grew up in, in the world where I'm really old where the, the existence of Israel was in question. Mm. And so there was a sense of, oh my gosh, we have to make sure that Israel continues to exist. It was, right. you know, in the 70s, it's before, like nobody at Entebbe said, oh, you know, I, I really don't believe that Israel should have invaded an African country. Without, mm-hmm. Like that wasn't the issue then. Right. So yeah, so there was a period in the past where it was much less contentious. Yeah, and I, I think there's a level on which people... People like feeling, well, if the default when I was growing up was Israel is wonderful and Israel is great and we're pro-Israel by default, it seems intellectually bolder to reject that. And I don't want to minimize, I mean, again, I don't want to create a straw man. I know there are people who have had a more complex engagement and struggle than that. But I think the the what troubles me sometimes is the sort of reflexive, it seems to me, idea of saying I need to be apologetic about my Judaism, my support for Israel, and I need to feel you can acknowledge that there are complications without constantly feeling the need to make that central to your approach to the conflict mm-hmm. or to you, you don't need to constantly be apologizing for it about it. And I, I think also it's a question of where are you going to focus your energies? I, I sometimes think given where I am and and who I am, there are plenty of people that are around criticizing Israel. Some of that criticism is valid. My priority is not joining those people. Mm-hmm. Um, my priority is saying, you know, I think in a world where there's this tendency, I think to extrapolate from Israel does certain things that are wrong or there are certain injustices like there are with any government and any any group to say, therefore, Israel is, is bad. And I treat this as an existential issue um, in a way that, doesn't happen for, I think, other countries and other issues. I mean, except on the very radical fringe, people recognize, for instance, that every day there are injustices in the U.S. criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Most people, I can't say everyone, but most people do not then say, well, then the criminal justice system is completely illegitimate and needs to be 100% dismantled and it should not exist. Or people don't look at it and say America's claims to existence are really fragile and should be boycotted. And Maybe there are some people who believe that, but it's a very fringe opinion. In a way, it's not when it comes so to far. discourse on Israel. So 
when I look at it and say where it's not even always an issue of if we went down the line and said, what are my opinions on this and this and this? It's a matter of what I prioritize. And I feel like there's nothing wrong with saying I, to the extent that that I have a voice here, I'm in some ways more interested in, ta- in working against the kind of demonization of Israel than in, I don't necessarily think my role needs to be the one who joins the joins the Legion of Critics, even at moments when I might say, you know, you have a point on that one. Um, and again, I don't think that's intellectually dishonest. I think it's a matter of saying we all have we all have our, you know, what you choose to focus your time on sometimes or what you focus to prioritize on is as important as what you actually believe. Well, what I saw, what I hear from you now, what I saw in the article, which I felt very empowering, was really this. Well, first of all, um, that the the narrative of the Jewish people is not succinct in the conflict with the Palestinians. A. And B, I can be very proud of my narrative and who I am and where I come from and my nation and my people and all these things um, and realize it's much bigger than just one issue, understanding that that uh, issue is complicated and challenges me. Um, But on the other hand, also not deny, I think this is also critical, not deny another person's narrative within that either. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that's also really critical, be able to be proud of mine without, it's like like I like to say today, yes and, right? Right. Like this is mine and this is who I am. And I'm not denying you, but that's, you know, well, again, or, or think, denying the complications that come with my narrative. By the way, there's another issue, which is I, I, I would feel more uh, morally obligated to go out into the street and protest on these issues if I thought I had a smart way to resolve them. Right. I don't I, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of protesting for hmm. as a, as my form of political expression uniquely if I don't have an actual in other words if I'm marching to free Soviet Jewry or for civil rights, I have specific goals in mind. Right. As opposed to a culture today where I just condemn and protest because that identifies me as somebody worthwhile. Right. And yeah. I, I think there's a difference also. I mean I've been in Israel for such a short time. I don't know how things will develop when I've been here for longer. But I think I feel that my position smoothly everything's smooth here. Right, my position. No bureaucracy at all. I also think there's a difference between the kind of conversations I'd be interested in having within the Jewish community or within, again, once I've been here for longer, possibly um, to say, is there an internal debate on certain policies or certain questions as I become myself more more entrenched in the society? Sure, maybe I'm more troubled with the idea of saying in the United States where you're de- you're such a tiny minority and you're aware that there's this tendency to demonize Israel. If you yourself don't feel that Israel should be demonized, then I think you do have to maintain more of an awareness of saying, what what impression am I giving here? Am I being so open-minded that it becomes a kind of self-defeating thing where I I'm essentially I, I'm essentially having a conversation that maybe, I'm having a conversation on a stage that maybe I sh- maybe this is not the stage at which I should I want to be having this conversation. Yeah, well, I think the consequences yeah. aren't that it'll change Israel's policies. I think the consequences are that Jews in the diaspora will be more ashamed of their Jewish identity. I think that's right. what they're going to achieve. Yeah, and I mean it's especially difficult in a time where Jewish identity itself is is increasingly complicated in the but, US um, and I mean, again, birthright is dealing with that as well. I mean, that's the number, the goal. right? The number of people, especially as because of the rates of intermarriage, the number of people who may be half Jewish, um, are you halakhically Jewish? Or are you not halakhically Jewish? Do you define yourself as Jewish? Do you also define yourself as something else? Um, it's it's a different kind of Jewish landscape, um, and one that that 
yeah, that's something to address. And as I said, that's something worth addressing that shouldn't have to be yoked automatically to this issue of the conflict where there are times and places that this should be discussed. Mm -hmm. And I don't think birthright is necessarily the The proper target. Well, we appreciate it very much. We felt very validated that somebody of your perspective and credentials was was like, we felt like, okay, okay, we're not crazy. Because sometimes you start to go... (laughs) Well, you well, might be crazy, but I'm crazy too. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay, that's good enough. And before we let you go, you have to tell us exactly who you're going to vote for on April 9th. No, just kidding. <laughs> that would be... Okay. I, that, I mean, that's your induction into Israel. Yeah, I, yeah, you do have to tell everyone when you're in Israel. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I, oh, because everyone will ask. I'm going to I'm gonna research it. Well, <laughs> we will see. You're going to find first, out which parties First, I'm going to find out which parties are actually still standing at the end of it. I will say, to complicate the narrative I started with of, you know, feeling really great about casting my first vote is that my candidate for Jerusalem mayor did not win. Uh-huh. Um, yet I can still have, yeah. I could still take joy in the memory. Yeah, that underscores your point. Yes. That it's, right, that it's the... Something I learned in my years is that the, the candidate that the, all the Anglos vote for I feel good about doesn't win. (laughs) Uh, I have a terrible track record, whether in Israel or America, of voting for people who win. So what can you do? But it's still a privilege. And and we can still celebrate the joy of the Jewish nation being having self-rule once again after 2,000 years without feeling bad about that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We appreciated the article. We appreciate you coming in and chatting with us for a while. Um, Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Alan. Of course, thanks always to the amazing Ben, and thank you, listeners. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, This is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, and it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys.